Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Friday, May 21st, 2021. And Mr. Taylor, because he lives out in Southern California and lives in close proximity to so many of the folks who actually make a lot of our favorite films, gets to do a lot of cool things. I just saw you post this on Twitter the other day, but it, it showed you traveling to a really for real movie theater. Yes. Was that a, a special 25th anniversary screening of the original Mission Impossible? Yes, they did a, um, a fat, one of those Fathom events where they mm-hmm. simulcast it. So it was, a, I think it was, I believe it was AMC theaters. It was three days. Mm-hmm. So we went on the last day mm-hmm. on Wednesday. Went up to City mm-hmm. Walk Gym, your favorite place. Oh. And uh, it was great. We, we, um, we met a lot of people that listened to the show and also some mm-hmm. some folks who have worked on the movies were there and it was just a nice it was a nice atmosphere Carly Wiesel our our buddy was there Hey Carly yeah. okay cool cool So um yeah it was a lot of fun although you know I'm just waiting for that uh, steampunk chocolate restaurant to open up in City Walk Gym I'm just you know counting down the days <laughs> Is there any progress being made no. that you've seen? If anything, no. okay. if anything, City Walks lo- looks deader than it was during the pandemic. But that's for an- another podcast, I'm sure. Okay, okay. And uh, by the way, folks, you recently got to see Cruella, which doesn't arrive in theaters or isn't available on Disney Plus for your premium access till next Friday, May 28th. Right? Yes, correct. Now, are you allowed to talk about this Craig Gillespie movie? Yet, I, I am. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm not, I can't review it. So if you hear me say a letter okay. grade, Jim, and then, you know, just cut the feed. But yeah. Oh, there we go. We'll slap you right down. <laughs> but. I've been watching the ads, I've been watching the, the trailers, and both Emma Thompson and Emma Stone make an impression, but does it work as a film? Or I loved it. I think this is my favorite mm. uh, live-action remake of one of these animated classics, and I think... Really? Yeah. Okay. It's got a lot of personality and a lot of spirit, mm. and mm. Gillespie is one of my favorite mm. directors out there today, and he really adds a lot of great sort of texture... <laughs> To the material, mm-hmm. and it's very surprising, so try not to read a lot about it. There's some good twists. But if you are near a theater that is open, definitely make the effort. I was going to ask you about that. So the, the, is this a theater versus the pay the $30 and watch at home? You, you say I say theater. theater. It's got a really cool soundtrack and a really great score, mm-hmm. and I would just have I would love to have seen and heard it that big and that loud. I was kind of startled to see... That Cruella actually had a world premiere at the El Cap this past Tuesday. Yeah, that was weird. I don't know. I don't know who exactly. I mean, I know Emma was there, um, mm-hmm. and I saw that Chapek was there as you did. There we yeah. go. Yeah, I was not invited, which I usually am to those kind of things, and mm-hmm. I don't know who else was and how they were being vetted. But yeah, it looked fun. It was, I guess, the first one of these. That has been done in 14, 15 months, uh, mind you, with really strict social distancing. And when you remember how those media pens used to be, where it's like, you used to dream that you're a piece of veal because that meant you had more room. Oh, yeah. Right before we all got shut down, I was at the red carpet for Stargirl, the Disney Plus movie, mm-hmm. at the El Cap. We were, and it was raining, so we were on the second floor of the El Cap in that little corridor gym. So if there was ground zero for COVID, it was probably <laughs> that premiere. Um, yeah, it was It was not great. Yes. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I'm so sorry. But 
I think it's big news that we, we actually got a Hollywood red carpet premiere at Dale Cap again. So speaking of news, folks, uh, the news portion of today's show is brought to you by Storybook Destination, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. Okay, we got a tr- finally got a trailer for Hotel Transylvania Transfermania. Yes. Which arrives in theaters July 23rd of this year. Fourth in the series, <laughs> first not to be directed by Gennady Tartakovsky, though he wrote the story or came up with the story, co-wrote the screenplay, and is executive producing. The word is that this is supposed to be the final installment of the series, yes. right? Okay. Yeah. What's significant about this is the pair that are directing this, Jennifer Kluska and Derek Draymon. They're also the pair that directed the Hotel Transylvania short Monster Pets was uh, showing up in theaters last month. Oh, right? yes, that's right. Yeah. That's at the only person from Monster Pets that's uh, coming over to Hotel Transylvania Transformania. We also have Brian Hall, the YouTube animation voice empresario. He's very famous for singing let it go but is all different disney characters but brian is now voicing dracula which means that adam sandler is not and how not surprised were you to hear this i was actually pretty surprised i mean i know that adam sandler and our our good friend mr tartakovsky did not always see eye to eye which Mm -hmm. makes me think that with gendy gone that he mm-hmm. would, you know, more easily come back. But yeah, I don't really know what happened yeah. there, to be honest. You know, Gennady was fairly straightforward, at least working on the first Hotel Transylvania back in 2012, that he basically had to trick Adam into getting the performance he wanted for that character out of Mr. Sandler. And that then got back to Adam Sandler, which made working on Hotel Transylvania you to a little tough. Yeah, I heard that one was the tough one. The second one. Yeah. Yeah, but doubling back to the trailer. Really liked the trailer. I like what I saw. It looks like it's going to be fun. Interesting kind of reversal. It kind of reminded me a bit about Shrek Ever After. In that, here we are, the fourth film of the series where you think something's running out of gas. And they find a fun idea. They find a fun way to go. So it'll be interesting to see if the the film actually delivers on the trailer. But we have another macabre project coming up, Tim Burton's Wednesday. Mm -hmm. This has nothing to do with Adam's Family 2, the cartoon from MGM that's that's coming on October 8th of this year. This is... This is a series for Netflix, right? Yes, this is the live-action series, which is Tim Burton's first... Which is interesting just unto itself. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you and I, we should do a we should do a family dog uh, feature oh, when it comes out. But yes, yeah. okay, okay, I can get behind yeah. that. So this is Wednesday Adams, the now young adult version of Gomez and Morticia's daughter. Wednesday, as the show gets underway, is a student at Nevermore Academy. This is where Wednesday attempts to master her emerging psychic ability. Thwart a monstrous killing spree that is terrorizing the local town and solve the supernatural mystery that embroiled her parents 25 years ago, all while navigating her new entangled, uh, new and very tangled relationship at school. 
sounds promising, and I guess I'm going to be kind of intrigued to see what Tim Burton does with long-form limited series type stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it should be really, it, it seems like a nice mixture of artist and property. Uh, while we're talking about subscription streaming services, we also get a young adult take on Superman, uh animated series coming to HBO Max. Right. My Adventures with Superman, starring Jack Quaid, who also is the voice of the main character in Star Trek Lower Depths. So he's got a oh, he's got a big career. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we had uh, all the upfronts were this week. So there's a lot of a lot of TV stuff. To, to go over. Yeah, yeah. We're also getting a new Batman animated series from quite the trio. J.J. Abrams, Matt Reeves, who's who's doing the new Batman film, as well as Bruce Timm, yeah. who, you know, obviously has ties to the original Batman, the animated series back in the 90s. All we really got is that one piece of, of concept art. <laughs> what did you think? I mean... I'm always a little wary of a Batman animated project without Paul Dini. I think he mm-hmm. is, um, you know, he's, yeah. he's a big part of that secret sauce. And I don't know, Jim, if you read his really wonderful autobiographical graphic novel from a couple of years ago that goes into his time on Batman and a very violent assault that happened to him during the production of the show. And so in the comic book, he actually talks to Batman, sort of like, what am I supposed to do about it? It's just really... It's really wonderful. Um, I really suggest people pick that up. But to me, it's sort of like, why don't we just make some more episodes of the animated series? But, yeah. you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, you know I, I, I've been a, a fan of, of Paul's work forever. In fact, that honestly, if you, if you want to read one of the genuinely funniest things I've ever read in my entire life, there is a, a reminiscent of Paul going to Pleasure Island, and I'm not talking about the theme park, or, you know, nighttime theme park at Walt Disney World. I'm talking about the Disneyland clone that was built outside of Boston, where the very young Paul Dini is, is, is taken there by his family. And it's kind of the theme park nightmare trip. I mean, it, it involves a Popeye walk-around character that Paul, I think, describes as looking syphilitic. <laughs> And and the Three Stooges, you know. So I really, seriously, hammer on Paul Dini, D I N I, and the words Pleasure Island, and hopefully that piece will come up. And it's just a wonderful piece of reading. But again, while we're talking about Batman, we also saw this week Warner Brothers Animation, DC, and Warner Brothers Home Entertainment have begun to really thump the tub for Batman: The Long Halloween, part one of this two-part animated epic. Uh, hit store shelves. June 22nd. Also, I was at Target and walked by an end capped and saw that Raya and the Last Dragon is out. The Blu-ray and the DVD uh, went on sale May 18th of this week. And it was one of these things where it's like, ooh, ooh, I, I got to pick that up because I want to finally see Zach Paris's short, Us Again. You've actually managed to see that. Yeah, that point, I right? saw it before the movie came out and I, I, I loved it. It's really great. Mm-hmm. Just have your tissues ready, Jim, because it's a... It's a tearjerker. All right. I had the internal debate. I'm buying an entire film I already have already just so I can see a short. And it's just sort of like, but. But But I'm sure there's a lot of great special features. I I have it too. I should say that. that, But I have not gone through Mm -hmm. it yet. But I am looking forward to it. All right. Yeah. 
Oh, well, and speaking of things you already have, you have your copy of The Art of Mitchells versus the Machines, which, again, hit store shelves just this past Tuesday. Haven't gotten my copy yet, but my daughter, Alice, has, and she just loves this 224-page uh, hardcover. That, that just It's an amazing look at how this film came together. Yes, it is wonderful. And speaking of books, though, that you already have your review copy of Chronicle Books, the Art of Luca. Yes. You, you got it yesterday, today? I got it today. I didn't know it was coming this early. Usually they come a lot closer, but I'm sure they were they trying do. to get out ahead of the holiday. And it is in the plastic gym. I am not a sociopath like yourself. I have not <laughs> looked in, in inside of it to see how it ends or anything, you know? So uh. it will stay there until I watch the movie, and then afterwards I will get to open it with, with much glee. Okay. But I wanted and, to thank well, Chronicle uh, for that. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Uh, and that book hits store shelves on June 8th, and the film itself doesn't arrive on uh, Disney Plus till the 18th of next month. Yep. While we're talking about Pixar and Disney Plus, I guess we should talk about Monsters at Work. We just got a trailer this week for this new uh, animated series, which will debut on that uh, subscription streaming service. On July 2nd. Uh, what'd you think? I thought it was very funny, and I thought the animation looked really great. I've heard a lot about the production of this show that I mm-hmm. can't really go into here, but mm-hmm. it seems like it was kind of a fraught production, but you cannot tell. You know, the sweat the sweat is not in that animation because it looks really great. The character design is wonderful. I thought, yeah, I think it's I think it looks really fun. Now, this is from Icon Creative Studio in Canada, is that correct? Or? It, it was animated by Icon, and it was overseen by Disney Television Animation, which is now called Disney Branded Television, I believe, is oh, the name, new name. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I want to hear the sound cue that goes with yeah. that. Okay, but this past Monday, they're continuing that month-long programming event on, on ABC, the, the Wonderful World of Disney, and they've... They've already done Incredibles 2 and Finding Dory. And this past Monday, they showed the original Monsters, Inc. from 2001. You've noticed this, right? When you you watch early Pixar, I mean, the stories are always great. But every so often, there'll be this chunk of animation that you're looking at with 2021 eyes, where the rendering or the lighting isn't up to Pixar's current standards. Yes. Yes. And it just kind of go. it pulls you out just for a moment, like, woof. I want to say this as a compliment to the folks at Icon Creative Studios, as well as the folks at Disney branded television. But some of the animation that I saw in the trailer for Monsters at Work actually looked better than the stuff for the original Monsters, Inc., which I think says a lot for the team. Can we also you know, talk that, about that, how stupid the the Wonderful World of Disney intro is, especially compared to the the, the 80s version, which was so well, great. Yeah, but what's so funny about the 80s version, if you, you watch it today, they're spitting around the castle in the middle of it, you actually get the Three Musketeers, or one of the Three Musketeers sort of sitting on one of the turrets of the, the Disney castle, and he's waving to you, and it's like, Oh, yeah, Kiefer Sutherland, yes. I think that's actually later, that version. I'm talking about the one that goes, like, underneath the castle, and then it goes to, like, to Epcot, you know, that one? Yes, 
and they do they they do the flyover. Well, you know, Mickey's on yes. top of Spaceship yes. Earth, and and then yes, you know, I mean, you're right. In 1980s CG, <laughs> that's really. But what's cool. fun? You know, yeah, I mean, but I think I, the castle is actually Tokyo Disneyland's castle, which is also very well. Cool. Okay, there's yeah. that. You know, just it's you know, cool. Just a, a, it, it's it's cool, but but at the, at the same time, I'm I'm always fascinated by these things. Like Disney Plus just put up, it's this professionally shot version of the nighttime projection show yes. for Disneyland Paris. But what's amazing about it is it is such a time capsule for 2015. I mean, they have a giant pirate section. Yeah, Force Awakens. Yes, yes, that's it exactly. And, and and they end with Frozen front and center, you know, just hammering home, let it go. But it's just sort of like, it's such a snapshot of that moment in the Disney company, that time. This is the stuff we're pushing. These are these are our franchises. Did you watch? Please go out and buy. Did you watch the uh, Star Wars biomes thing on Disney Plus? I did, I did. So speaking of animation, um, that was all done by ILM. Really beautiful work, I thought. Mm-hmm. You know, you appreciate the discipline, like the one where it's where you're on Hoth, and it's like you watch a little herd of Tauntauns go wander through a, a, a mountain pass, and you watch the Atas, yeah. you know, slowly make their way across, you know, the tundra to take out the base. And it's just, I mean, it, it, the fact that it's like they buy into the conceit that you're watching all of this from a distance, and the sound. Oh my God, the sound. Yeah. Listen, it's more atmospheric than Galaxy's Edge, so you know. <laughs> Come on, people, give me the give me the tweet at me. Come on, uh, okay, yeah, okay. yeah. No, that, this is probably not the week to get people to. <laughs> did Did you see that Rise of the Resistance? I think has been down for two full days at this point. You know, a ride that has worked flawlessly since the day it opened, Jim. <laughs> Okay, well, we're making friends left and right here tonight. Okay, we were just talking about DC projects a moment ago. We now have Dwayne Johnson, who's already been social mediaing up the fact that he's doing Black Adam mm-hmm. for Warners. Just today, we found out he's voicing Crypto the Superdog for Warner Brothers is releasing DC League of Super Pets. Yes. May 20th, 2022. And... I wanted to take a look at the schedule to see what this was going head-to-head with, and it's like, Drew, I, I apologize in advance. This will be the longest day you have spent in a movie theater in quite some time, because it's like on that same day that a DC League of Super Pets is being released, Mission Impossible 7 and then John Wick 4 also come out on that same day. Yeah. Just saying. I'll be ready, Jim. I'll be ready. Okay, yeah. the adult diaper and, and no big soda. I think that John Wick is going to blink, but that's just my personal... Really? Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, that kind of makes sense. I mean, I'm excited about Super Pets, though. It's a lot of the same people that worked on Teen Titans go to the movies, which I thought I think is maybe my favorite DC movie <laughs> of late. So, you know. It's now begun to, to show up fairly regularly on, on cable, and it's, you know, as I'm blasting through looking for things to watch... It, it's an easy way to kill 15, 20 minutes. It's so ridiculously entertaining, whether it was a whole film or just in chunks. Yes. But again, that, that came to us from Cartoon Network. And you pointed out that we have Smiling Friends being turned into a series later this year. What yes. is that about? Did you watch the original short, Jim? I have not yet. 
it's bizarre. It's very Adult okay. Swim, but it it seems mm-hmm. very perfect for that that niche that they have. So okay, yeah. okay. And in the other big announcement today, we have Netflix putting out three animated projects from, as the folks at Cartoon Brew put it, Asian-American creators. Uh, We've got a film and two series. Kind of interesting to see the Monkey King there in the mix. Yes, that's the one I'm most excited about. Because mm-hmm. Stephen Chow is executive producing it, I guess because it this has some relationship to his really wonderful Journey to the West, which was released a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend everybody seeking it out. Stephen Chow is amazing. And I think Stephen Chow is someone who has a an animator's brain when it comes to live action stuff, if you've seen any of his films. But that one is being directed by Anthony Stocky, who directed Box Trolls. Yes. So yes. I'm very into so. that. Sounds great. Should we talk about Travis Knight? I think when you you mentioned Box Troll, that makes me think of Laika. Travis just got another live action project, didn't he? Or oh, is he? What is he doing now? <sighs> I was hoping you'd remember. I heard about he's isn't he doing like the Six Million Dollar Man and something else? Oh, Vampire Thriller Uprising. Yes, yes. Travis is is directing for Netflix and an action thriller, uh, vampire based, and it's just. The center of the entertainment business just has so solidly shifted to subscription streaming. And and speaking of which, today, Marvel's MODOK debuted on Hulu. And I know we've talked about this on previous episodes of Fine Tuning, so Drew always accuses me of not doing my homework. So today, sat down and watched episode four of Star Wars The Bad Batch, and then plunged into all 10 episodes of this new show from Stupid Buddy Studio. And and now you've seen one or two of them? I right watched through? one last night after Cruella. Mm-hmm. I thought it was fine. I will keep mm-hmm. watching it, but it was pretty bizarre. It's Stupid Buddy Studios, the, you know, the guys who do Adult Swim's uh, uh, Robot Chicken. So it's, it's masterfully animated. It's got an absolutely killer uh, vocal cast. Pat Oswalt, Ben Schwartz. It's, it's also, it's really got some fun writing. The downside is it's a show about divorce and the impact that that can have on your kids and your career. And that's not nearly as funny a vein to mine as you might think. I mean, yeah, he's a, a Marvel supervillain and, you know, Patton Oswalt voicing him. So it always great spins on lines and you know, that sort of thing. But I, I don't know. Maybe it's because I have a giant head. Maybe I empathized a, a little too much with Modoc. And the show kind of brought back some bad memories of the first couple of months of my own divorce. And that said, though, it ends really strongly. I would love to see a second season of the show. I'd see where Marvel's Modoc goes from here. And if you're going to watch anything related to the show, you got to catch... Episode six, which has a two to three minute long mad scientist battle that is it's one of the craziest things I've ever seen in animation ever. It's almost up there with the wizard's battle from Disney's Sword in the Stone. Just lots and lots of crazy transitions and animation tricks and that sort of thing. But that that's a must-see. And speaking of must-sees, the Walt Disney Family Museum has a special exhibit going on right now that every animation fan, especially if you're a history buff, needs to go see. And Drew and I will talk more about this topic after this break. 
Okay, Drew, uh, you and I have talked about how Disneyland Park and DCA finally reopened back on April 30th. By the way, did you see today that we actually now have an opening date for the Matterhorn bobsleds? Yeah, but if you really want to get the most out of your Matterhorn bobsled, Jim, you're going to have to buy Mm. a $50 Yeti arm that will interact (laughs) with the bobsled and really give you the most out of that experience. (laughs) So we've we've heard about the wed slingers thing, have we? <laughs> what a crock! <laughs> Len and I actually talk about this on the most recent Disney Dish, and it's one of these things where it's just sort of like when Universal was thinking about the interactive wands for the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. They actually had this conversation to the effect of, you know, it's like, you know, I mean, do we really? want to make people pay for these things. You know, it just, it doesn't seem fair. And, you know, they, they debated the price point and they felt like they had to spread the interactive exhibits both in uh, Hogsmeade and over at uh, Diagon Alley to make it worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And so it's $25, $30 to get a wand. So the notion that you're supposed to pay $63 for this wrist thingy that will give you a higher score on just one ride? That looks awful. By the way, does it? I haven't seen the. Oh yeah, they look—they're totally cumbersome, and I don't know how anybody is supposed to have this thing on their hand. And then what do you do with it for the rest of the day? You're lugging this giant plastic thing around. They were pointing out that the financial quarter for the Walt Disney Company that ended on January second—that three-month period alone—the parks lost two point eight billion dollars. So I'm not surprised that something like this during that period got greenlit, but it's not good show. This is going to be sold in the gift shop after you get off the ride. Just the whole notion of how was your score? Oh, terrible. Well, how about this? You know, just. Well, it also it also runs so antithetical to this anti-annual pass situation, right? Because if, yeah. if, if I was going out and going on this ride once a week, Sure, mm-hmm. I'd I'd spend the thing to have a different experience. If I'm going on it once a year, then I don't mm-hmm. know if I need to spend the $63 to make my web shooter electric. You know what I mean? I, I just feel like there's a lot of competing ideas about what's going on at Disneyland, and none of them seem very good. But The initial thing for this attraction was supposed to be that you were supposed to buy a spider bot, like the Droid Depot. Right. At Galaxy's Edge, that there would be this your opportunity to build your own spider bot. And, it, and by the way, it has, a, I want to say, a similar price point, the high 60s to the low 70s. And what I've been told is like, well, yeah, and if COVID hadn't happened, we would have had Anaheim Avengers Campus open last summer, and everybody would have bought the spider bots. And this was the thing for season two. This wristband was, was supposed to be the, you know, the, you've already come, you're a, mm. a California local, you bought your spider bot, and it's like, oh, here's something that enhances your game experience for the ride that's been open for a full year. Because of the fact that, that things got delayed, you know, have the spider bot, and the fact that the wristband had been ordered a year plus and was being built overseas and then was on the literal slow boat to China or from China. Evidently, the folks in, in retail, you know, the resale town of Disney are just not happy because it's like you're screwing up the spider bots. The interesting thing is those went on sale in January thereabouts. Remember when they, yeah. they, they took the old ESPN restaurant and turned that into a annual pass holders only shop? And one of the 
the ideas was you could get a spider bot before the Anaheim camp, camp is open. Yeah, I mean, all we've heard about since January are the spider bots, Jim. Just wh- where are they? What are they doing now? How many people? Ha- you know, it's just been nonstop spider bot talk. Yeah, okay. Not you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, it's just it's a division of the company that's under tremendous financial pressure right now to start earning and start earning big. So don't be surprised if we see other things like this appear. But all right. Anyway, we were talking about Disneyland reopening on April 30th. Not the only uh, Disneyland related attraction in California to, to have been closed for 14 months and now reopening. And Walt Disney Family Museum opened on April, uh, reopened on April 22nd. And You've been up there. You've seen it. I've right? never Sir. seen it. I, I was stuck at ILM oh. for a day. And so I was like, mm-hmm. is there a way for me to get over there and get back before mm-hmm. my, you know, press obligations mm-hmm. or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never I've never gone to go. I, I'm sure I would love it. OK. Yeah. OK. You and I are going to go to this trip. I mean, mind you, I, I have to caution you. It is. It's Disney overload. I mean, just, you know, there were so many interactive exhibits. There were so many. Items on display that you're really good for the first couple of rooms. I mean, you're really paying attention to a lot of displays and, you know, checking everything out. But you start to pick up speed as you get to the middle. By the end, you're, you're kind of blitzing by things because it's, it's overload. I mean, it's just you are dropped in the deep end of Walt Disney's life and everything that he did. And it, I mean, it's spectacular, but I, I always feel like it's like I should get a two or three day ticket and come back. Right. And do it right. And one of the other reasons that you want to do it that way is because they now have what used to be the old gymnasium behind the old barracks building that they've turned into the museum. And that has, in turn, been changed into the Diane Disney Miller Exhibit Hall, which is where, right now, the Walt Disney Studios and World War II exhibit is being displayed. And this will run through January 10th, 2022. And I have not seen it yet in person myself, but I did spring for the 54-page long catalog. It has a, a wonderful piece of art on the cover by Mike Gabriel from Pocahontas, right? The director? Yes, and also Rescuers Down Under, Jim. There we go. But it's, it's this great image of Donald as a pilot holding onto a World War II flyer with the Golden Geek Bridge in the background. Yeah. One of the things that, for me, that makes this this catalog worth having is that it includes two and three pages of art from one of the more intriguing animated features that Walt Disney Productions almost made, and that's a film version of Roll Dolls Gremlins. You worked at Disney for, you know, especially in the Oh My Disney stuff. Yeah. Did you ever talk with doing anything with the Gremlins? I did, and I was trying to find it. I thought I, thought I had actually written something, but I don't think I mm-hmm. did, but... It, there was a book that came out not that long ago that sort of uh, from Disney Press that had sort of stuff from it. But um, the World War II area, Jim, was a little bit forbidden. So I was just trying to stay stay away well, from that. Yeah. I mean, and there's so many aspects of when it comes to World War II that today are kind of like, eh, do we really want to talk about that? Yeah. World War II starts on September 1st, 1939, which is when Germany invades Poland and the very next day... Great Britain and France declare war on Germany. And so the Americans, they get right behind their, their allies' buddies, right? You know, the, the Great Britain and France, they're, they're right in there right after that happens, right, Drew? Uh, no, no. <laughs> no, it's, it's two years and two months 
before the United States actually gets involved in this conflict. And even then, that only happens on the heels of the, you know, the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. We stood back for quite some time. And history books tend to gloss over this. We had, you know, some very powerful people like Joe Kennedy, uh, the father of JFK, who from 1938 to 1940 was actually the U.S. ambassador to the United Kingdom. And while he's in that role, he's using back channels to try to set up a personal meeting with Adolf Hitler with the hope that he, Joe Kennedy, can somehow arrange some sort of understanding between the United States and Germany that, that, that America should just stay out of the war in Europe. And equally problematic is... Charles Lindbergh, who today everybody remembers as you know the first man to fly solo across the Atlantic, but during this time in his life, he's one of the main voices of the American First Committee. You know, he's the one who's out there preaching the non-interventionist gospel to millions of Americans, even as Paris falls to the Germans. So it was very powerful, very popular, and politically connected people like Joe Kennedy and Charles Lindbergh saying. This is an America's fight. Again, it takes us 26 months to, to finally enter the fray. But Hollywood, they knew this war was coming, which is why as early as January of 1941, a full 11 months before uh, Pearl Harbor, we see studios start to churn out war-related comedies. First one of these is Abbott and Costello's Buck Privates. And you know how long it takes to make a movie. You know how long, you know, in fact, in all the wonderful interviews, you've done with like Paul Hirsch when you think about the months and months and months yes. that he spends editing a film you know to try to make it these stories about how fast Universal worked on these Abbott and Costello comedies I mean they put Buck Privates into production on December 13th 1940 they finished shooting the entire film on January 11th and 20 days later it's out in theaters wow it, it blows my mind, but, but what also blows my mind is it makes huge box office. It cost the studio $245,000 to make the thing, and it then went on to sell $4 million worth of tickets just in the United States. And Universal was like, holy cow, look at the money we just made in this thing. So they immediately turned around and put another service comedy in the works. Uh, it's called In the Navy. Only now, instead of Bud and Lou joining the army, it's Bud and Lou enlisting to be sailors. Goes in front of the cameras on April 8th, 1941. Completely rest production by May 9th. And it's out in theaters by the end of the month on May 30th. <laughs> Which, I, I can't, I just, I cannot understand. Yeah. How do you do that? How do you edit a film? How do you score it? How do you make prints? And that makes crazy money as well. So that in the same year, the same year, they make a third service comedy. Uh, keep them flying. Now Bud and Lou are signing up to be members of the Army Air Corps. This is before there was an Air Force, official Air Force. That didn't start till September 47. Uh, keep them flying. I, actually, this is the lengthy production because they, it involves a lot of you know stunt flying and that sort of thing. They start shooting September 5th. They wrap on October 29th, 1941. And it's out in theaters four weeks later, 10 days before Pearl Harbor. Oof. 
And what kills me is that Abbott and Costello make two other movies for Universal that same year. They make a, a supernatural comedy called Hold That Ghost, which gets released in August of 41. And then they shoot a Western comedy called Ride Him Cowboy that gets held back and doesn't get released till February 42. But here is Hollywood looking at this ridiculously crazy amount of money that Universal Pictures is making in the back of service films. And it's, you know, service-based comedies. And it's like, we got to get into that. And among the folks who noticed that was Walt Disney. And if you want proof, watch the last minute of Dumbo. Do you remember, you know, the, how you get that scene at the end of Dumbo where, you know, he's, he's let go of the feather, but he believes in himself and he finally flies around the circus. And then you suddenly get the montage that shows you, you know, what a huge success he's become. Yes. So you get what, get to the newspaper headline of Wonder Elephant Soars to Fame. You get a magazine cover of Dumbo Sets Altitude Record. And then you get a brief image of Dumbo Bombers for Defense. And the story I was told by Ward Kimball was that this image was added to the montage at the end of Dumbo less than a month prior to theatrical release. And again, it was all supposedly because Walt, who had just gotten back from South America from the Goodwill tour, was there looking and it's like, geez, look at all the money those Abbott and Costello war comedies have made. And can, can we put some sort of reference to the war into Dumbo. And so that's where the bombers came from. Wow. We jump ahead now to 1942. This is Walt Disney, who the Army Air Corps has moved in. They've set up a gunnery unit because they're protecting the Lockheed plant down the street. They've taken over so many of the offices for and turned them into billets for the troops. And also the market for Disney's films has dried up in Europe and Asia. And so it's one of these situations where it's like, we need money. We need, we need to make something popular. We need to make something popular fast. And this is where Raul Dahl, and, and again, just want to stress here, this is that Raul Dahl. This is the guy who wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, Matilda, and the Fabulous Mr. Fox. This is when he comes on Walt Disney's radar. Mind you, it's months, it's years before Raul Dahl actually writes any of those books. This is July of 1942. And at the time, Roald Dahl is an assistant air attaché stationed in Washington, D.C., working as a liaison between the U.S. Army Air Corps and the RAF, which is, of course, the Royal Air Force. Dahl has written a little bit about his experience in the RAF during the early days of the war. And among the stories that Dahl has written is a, you know, a nine-page thing called Gremlin Lore, which supposedly talks about these mythical creatures that live high up in the sky that then sabotaged British planes. A whimsical bit of nonsense. Not a whole lot there. But gremlin lore somehow makes its way all the way from Washington, D.C. to Burbank, California. And a copy of this nine-page thing winds up on Walt Disney's desk. And Walt is charmed by gremlin lore. He thinks, this is my wartime story. The one that'll connect me with, with the audiences on the home front. And it'll make Disney Studios plenty of money. He's desperate for better cash flow at this point. So... Walt uses his connections in Washington. And remember, he's making all these training films at the time. So he has threads to pull and people to reach out to. And so he gets Dahl reassigned to an RAF uh, office out on the West Coast. 
And then they cook up this excuse that it's a wartime effort to improve morale, you know, between the United States and Britain. So Roald Dahl gets assigned to go work at Disney Studios on this project that will supposedly turn his gremlin lore story into a full-length animated feature. And, okay, so now it's November of 1942, and Roald Dahl is 26 years old and arrives at Walt Disney Studios. And only a nine-page long story to base on. So that's not enough material for a full-length animated feature. So Dahl spends the next six months working with Disney's story team and the artists there to expand the lore of the Gremlins. And by April of 43... There's an actual book. I mean, not a manuscript for a book, Drew. A book. This is probably the thing you were talking about. Maybe they reprinted this through Disney editions. Uh, It was called The Gremlins, A Royal Air Force Story, which, by the way, they credited to Flight Lieutenant Roald Dahl. But Disney partners with Random House Publishing. And and this is so amazing with the story. It's the war. There's a paper shortage going on, but Walt somehow sweet talks Random House into printing 50,000 copies of Gremlins, which are, are published in the United States and immediately sell out. And in fact, the book does so well that they sell the rights to Australia publication rights and an additional 30,000 get printed and sold down there. If you've seen the book, it has these wonderful illustrations that were done by Disney artists who worked at the studio in the 40s. Uh, In fact, Mary Blair actually did the cover of the book. But the book sells so well, and it has these cute characters, and toy manufacturers suddenly show up at the studio, and it's like, we want to make dolls and plush based on the gremlin figures. And so Walt's like, well, sure, absolutely. So we've got a best-selling book, we've got a line of of well-received toys, And we've got a storyline that will supposedly appeal to wartime audiences. So why didn't Dahl and Disney's Gremlins animated feature actually go into production? By the middle of 1943, America is growing tired of the conflict in Europe and Asia. You know, too many of the country's young men by now have either died or been maimed in the effort. So moviegoers, you know, in fact, my mother used to talk about this. Because remember, this is the pre-television age. Right. So you'd go to a theater and you'd see a double feature, which would include a newsreel. And often as not, that's where they'd learn about what had most recently happened in World War II. They'd see footage from the battle scenes and that sort of thing. And it was this relentless drumbeat of, it's not going well. In fact, we haven't even gotten part to the tough part now in 44, the Battle of the Bulge. So America, it's just losing its taste for wartime-related stories. And and no clear example, you know, Laurel and Hardy, who were Abbott and Costello's competitors when it came to film comedy, uh, they made their own war service comedy. They made a thing called Air Raid Warnings, uh, Wardens, excuse me, with NGM released in April of 43, uh, which, which actually got advertised as Stan and Ollie's gayest comedy, which glorifies our home front heroes. It comes out and does a third of the business that uh, Evan Costello's in the Navy did just two years earlier. And even Bud and Lou at this point are like, they're sensing that their audience has lost their appetite for this. So they switch from service comedies to sports-related comedies. They make one in 43, it's called It Ain't Hay, uh, hits theaters in March of 43, that's about horse racing, and then Hit the Ice, uh, which hits theaters again, again in June, June of that same year. I just can't imagine producing films that fast these days. But yeah, that Hit the Ice is a comedy about hockey. So 
Back to Disney Studios. Walt has this perfectly charming, war-related animated feature all ready to put in production in the late summer of 43, just as audiences are just losing their taste for war-related films. And I got this story from Ward Kimball, but he, he said that Walt himself... Because Roald Dahl, again, is just a 26-year-old kid who's been pulled out to Hollywood and, you know, that you know, suddenly is on, you know, this glamorous film lot. And it was Walt himself pulled him into his office and had to break the bad news that Gremlins was not going forward. And Ward told me that Roald actually took the news surprisingly well, which is, which is by the way, borne out. Dahl, had, in his 1999 book, Lucky Break, How I Became a Writer, he looked back in the nine months he spent at Disney Studios and he said, each day I worked with the great Disney at his studio in Burbank, roughing out the story for the forthcoming film. I had a ball. Now, to, to sort of circle back to your time at Disney, Drew, what I have heard since this went basically into the vault in late 43, 44, that almost like clockwork, every decade, somebody would go down to, well... Yeah, it used to be the morgue, you know, that, that, that thing behind the chicken wire. And these days, I guess you have to go to the air-conditioned lockdown building, the, what, the ARC, the Animation Research Center. But, you know, somebody would go and pull out all of the concept art and all of the boards for gremlins to look at it. Because it's like, we have a story that was written by Roald Dahl. <laughs> you know, why, ha- why have we never made this movie? Right. I know we talked on the last show about the Van Eaton most recent Van Eaton animation auction, the, what is it, Discovering Disneyland. But they're actually selling, as part of that auction, a full set of boards for this film from 1943. It's nine pages long. The boards themselves are 42 inches uh, tall and 53 inches wide. But it's the whole film. It's every image that would have been, you know, every one of the boards of the film, you can learn the whole story, it has a starting price of... 2000 to 3000 I'm, I'm going to be fascinated to see if this even sells and what it goes for. But when you were at Disney, did anybody ever talk about circling back on this stuff? Or, or like you said, was it just the Warriors are just too problematic for Disney? Yeah, I mean, they were in Epic Mickey, um, mm-hmm. which if you'll remember. That's right. That's right. Yes. Okay. So I was, yeah, I was, the, the Gremlins. Yeah. I mean, at the time, my my division was Disney Interactive, so there was still that stuff kind of hanging around. But mm. I never heard anything about it being kind of redone. And, and I think that, mm-hmm. you know, the stuff that Dahl was talking about inspired the Steven Spielberg gremlins, right? So, well, yeah. But, but again, it's interesting you bring up Mr. Spielberg because, again, on our last show, we were just, you know, doing the Roger Rabbit sequel story, and there was that whole thing about... How after he made Schindler's List that Stephen now couldn't possibly see, you know, Nazis as a comic villain for Roger Rabbit. So that's effectively killed, you know, Roger Rabbit Toon Platoon. And I I say this having just seen the rumor this week. Have you been seeing the news about Indiana Jones 5 and where it's potentially set? Yeah. I have. I think that's interesting. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's true. I mean, the site was some really weird, obscure site. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. I will say that in the original version, the much better version of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, yeah. part of the reason why it was set in South America was because there were mm-hmm. Nazi hiding out. Yes, um, yes. 
I can see them weaving it in that way. I think that that should be fine. I don't know. I don't know if he's going to be pissed. Who knows, Jim? We'll we'll see. Mm, that that's the Frank Darabont version of yes. the script. And yeah, that was a heartbreaker because that was a great script. It was a great script, and it made so much more sense than what they made, and it's so much more meaningful than what they made because mm-hmm. it was basically about Indiana Jones kind of coming to the end of his career and the end of his life and deciding what is more important, the sort of knowledge of his adventures or the love of his family. And it's just a really mm-hmm. wonderful script, and it has a lot... The action is much better. There's a great plane chase. I don't know if you remember that, Jim. Yes, yeah. yes, but, yes. Um, you were mentioning the Nazi thing, and... If you remember how they wind up taking out one of the Nazi villains and that I, I think they turned him into a roach, don't they? Or <laughs> Oh, the aliens at the end? Yeah. 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 So it's really it's uh, yeah, a that, cool that, script. If, I don't know if it's still out there in the wild, but hmm. seek it out if you can. It's really a lot no, of No, absolutely. It, it's, yeah. it's a great read. It's a great read. And and speaking of great pieces of entertainment, I, I honestly folks cannot say enough good things about light the fuse and and more to the point because you tweeted about it i can now talk about this right about yes. who you yes. got coming in june i yes. oh my god how did you get brian De Palma? this was like a year-long process jim but it started when he put out a book which you should actually next time when you go to get the art of M- mitchell's versus the machines jim pick up his novel which is called are snakes ne- necessary Okay. Which is a reference to the Lady Eve, I believe. And um, it is just a lot of fun. And so we started, we said, well, I wonder if he's doing press for this. And that's kind of how we started mm-hmm. reaching out. And the paperback is finally coming out. So we, we're doing the chat about that, basically. Um, but we, we get into all these different aspects of his career. We ask mm-hmm. him about how he shot Paul Hirsch's wedding, which is something that we heard from Paul. Um, and it's really, it's a really fun chat. And I'm not Mm -hmm. just saying that because I want people to listen to it. I I Mm -hmm. genuinely think it was really awesome and I think people are going to love it. So that's coming up in June. And I mean, you've already had so many people on the show who have played such a huge role in Hollywood history, but Brian De Palma, holy cow. Yeah. I can't list all of the films of his that I've seen over the years and how many pieces of entertainment he's delivered. I mean, just, just the untouchables. And yes. that's a studio film, but a Brian De Palma studio film is a very different animal. Yes. And we actually talk about mission to Mars. Really? Oh, he said that Gore was originally supposed yeah. to direct it. So, we have two. We have him. He him potentially directing the first two theme park based movies for Disney, which is pretty interesting. Wow. Um, yeah, and he t- he tells some great stories about that, and um, I tell him about the props being in the line at Florida, and it, it's very <laughs> funny, Jim. It's very funny. These shows drop in June in yes. coordination with the paperback. Of our snakes essential is that our snakes? You know, yeah, sna- our snakes necessary. Mm. Yeah, necessary. Okay. Yeah. So if people are looking to follow you on social media, Drew, how can they do that? Uh, just Drew Tailored, like a tailored shirt, on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media, and on Facebook as Jim Hill Media News. So thanks for listening, folks. And Drew and I will be back soon.